This podcast is about correcting the balance, whether it's something celebrated as good when it shouldn't be or the other way around. Or maybe the heroic tales of history just need to be knocked straight on their ass. Me, I just want to share the complete picture because that's when this whole thing gets fun. Warning, jokes and sarcasm may ensue. Welcome to Prick the Balloon. Hi, I'm Mike Vance, and welcome to episode 12 of Prick the Balloon. Way back in the first episode, I talked about how Andrew Jackson was a longtime hero of the Democratic Party, especially back when the Democrats were the conservatives and the farmers. And I also talked about how Jackson was a complete bully and a worthless, overrated jackal. Well, today, I want to talk about the other Democratic hero that the party often held up as an icon, but this time, it was progressive Democrats doing it. And you know what you'd say if somebody walked in on you and the 85-year-old neighbor lady naked in a hot tub, covered in peanut butter, watching racy monkey movies? Eh, you'd say, it's complicated. And that really and truly applies to Woodrow Wilson. So does the old neighbor lady, possibly, but I'm just guessing about the peanut butter. No shit. Woodrow Wilson is one of the most complicated, tough-to-pigeonhole people of importance that we've ever had in American history. You know from listening to me before that no one is either all good or all bad. No one except Ted Cruz. Everybody has some degree of gray someplace in there. The thing about Wilson is that he has these heaping spoonfuls of both good and bad. So let's jump in. One of the first things to understand about Wilson is where he came from. He was born in Stanton, Virginia, which is this sort of cool and pretty little town in the Shenandoah Valley. It's the kind of place with a good brew pub and terrific nature walks. And like most of the Shenandoah Valley, you're never more than a stone's throw away from a meth lab. They have the Woodrow Wilson Library and the Woodrow Wilson Birthplace Museum there. And they actually have this sentence in their brochure. Quote, Although his family left Stanton when he was still a baby, it was in this forthright dwelling that the seeds of Wilson's firm moral and intellectual training were planted. End quote. Huh? He was a baby, for Christ's sake. The only seeds that were planted came out in unexpectedly orange poop. The peak of Wilson's intellect in Stanton consisted of him trying to put his entire fist in his mouth. But it's where he really grew up that shaped him greatly. The family left Western Virginia and moved to Augusta, Georgia in the years just prior to the Civil War. You might remember that the very western parts of Virginia refused to secede and became the state of West Virginia in 1863. Wilson was gone by then, but literally a contiguous county to the one where he was born was a Union County. So you can imagine the vibe around there, right? But like I said, Wilson got none of that since he grew up in Augusta, Georgia. And in 1860, when Wilson was four years old, Augusta, Georgia was as hardcore, deep-ass south as you could find. It was a day's walk from squeal like a pig, you got a pretty mouth. Woodrow Wilson was the last American president to be born into a household with enslaved labor. He was five years old when the Civil War started, so he would have had personal memories of his mommy and daddy owning other people. 
When you look at Wilson's later thoughts and personality, it ain't hard to figure out what some of these influences were. He was Scots-Irish in his entirety. His grandfather Wilson came from County Tyrone to Steubenville, Ohio, later the birthplace of Dean Martin, of course, and the grandfather James Wilson bought a newspaper and published it for 20-something years. He was against slavery and in favor of protective tariffs, which was a big issue at the time, just like Hillary's emails. Wilson's dad was a Presbyterian minister who had met his mom while she was enrolled in an all-girls academy in Steubenville. So you can only imagine what a party household that was to grow up in. It was the church that sent the Reverend Wilson south to Virginia and then on to Georgia when the future Pres was just two years old. All of this makes him one of only two presidents to have ever been a Confederate citizen. Daddy Rev was such a hardcore Confederate that he helped organize a Southern Presbyterian church to differentiate it from those evil Yankee dour Bible thumpers. And if all this wasn't enough, as a teenager, Wilson moved to the only place on earth more enraptured with slavery, Columbia, South Carolina. One of his proudest moments was seeing Robert E. Lee in person when he was 13. So all of this is giving you a good picture of what Woody, whose real first name was Thomas, with a childhood nickname of Tommy, by the way, was all about. And for the record, not even his best friends called him Woody, but he and I ain't that close. Woody started college at Davidson in North Carolina, but left for who knows what reason, maybe sticking a mirrored shoe under a lady's bustle, and he transferred to Princeton. He was a political science and history major, a debater, loved sports, editor of the newspaper, and got involved in democratic politics in 1876 for the losing candidate Samuel Tilden. Here's some scary shit. I was a debater and editor of my newspaper in high school. I was a government and history major in college. My first political campaigning was a century after Wilson's, even though I wasn't old enough to vote yet. And I flirted with the idea of going to Princeton. They were recruiting me. But I really disliked the snobby tools that I met at the Get Acquainted party. Okay, so maybe that's not weird at all. Sports-wise, Wilson was secretary of the football team. Secretary. That's the dude the water boy gets to beat up. He was also evidently a very good baseball player, a left fielder. But one of his teammates, who later became governor of North Carolina, by the way, said Wilson was lazy and, quote, he was a fine ball player, but too wrapped up in reading to come out for practice, end quote. But he said that while Wilson was running for president, which is much nicer than just saying by the time he got to college, he kind of sucked. Way preferable to the assessments when my hitting suddenly fell off a cliff. The pitchers got way better, but Vance didn't. After Princeton, Wilson got a law degree at Virginia, practiced law for a really short time in Atlanta, and hated it. Then he got his Ph.D. from Johns Hopkins, making him the only president we've ever had with a Ph.D. If you think he was geeky, bookish, and a nerd, you are 100% on the mark. Wilson himself said, a professorship was the only feasible place for me, the only place that would afford leisure for reading and for original work, the only strictly literary birth with an income attached. Just before he turned 30, Wilson got a book published called Congressional Government. One reviewer called it, quote, the best critical writing on the American Constitution which has appeared since the Federalist Papers, end quote. Damn, Woody, that is some fine shit right there. Make sure that's on Goodreads. 
By this time, Wilson was married to the daughter of another Presbyterian minister. They really wanted to make damn sure that zero fun snuck into the Wilson household. Her name was Ellen, and she had gone to art school for portraiture, and they soon started having babies. Three girls. But with all that Presbyterianism, they may have been Immaculate Conceptions number two through four. Not to get all judgy about appearances, but Ellen was kind of a doughy, weak-chinned woman whose hair always stayed in a bun, and may have insisted on being called mother even during sex. She learned German so she could translate Woody's papers. I mean, Jesus, people, have a margarita for crying out loud. And one more time, I don't think anyone ever called Thomas Woodrow Wilson Woody, but I really like Toy Story. So Woody and his invisible sidekick, Bullseye, taught at Bryn Mawr, Wesleyan, where he also coached the football team, and then went back to Princeton. And by 1902, he was the Princeton College president, briefly using the name Quincy Adams Wagstaff. He also had the brain of a four-year-old, and I bet he was glad to get rid of it. Wilson hired the first Jewish and Catholic faculty members in Princeton's history, but he also worked every angle he possibly could to keep black students out of the school, even when other Ivy League schools had been admitting African Americans for many years. Princeton had a free black student way back in 1795, but that was a total anomaly, and after Wilson, it didn't happen again until 1947. Wilson also wrote more books while he was at Princeton, including one that was used as a jurisprudence textbook for years. So what we've established here, without any doubt, smart dude, total racist. A couple of interesting things happened while Woody was a college president. I've got it. Haddock. That's so funny. I got a haddock, too. Oh, really? What do you take for a haddock? Sometimes a aspirin, sometimes a calomel. Well, I'd walk a mile for a calomel. Wilson got a haddock in 1906, and he woke up one morning blind in his left eye. Doctors said he had hardening of the arteries, but modern medical folks think Wilson might have had his first stroke. People who knew him best said that after that, he started showing more impatience and intolerance. The sight in his left eye, by the way, stayed damaged for the rest of his life and was diagnosed as having been a retinal hemorrhage. Less than a year later, Woody goes on vacation to Bermuda alone because his wife was home tending to a sick daughter, and he struck up a close personal friendship with a socialite named Mary Peck. She was a gasp divorcee, and we all know what that means. Wowza! Boom, chicka, boom, boom. Wee! Hubba, hubba. <laughs> the relationship lasted years, and at one point, Woody sent this Peck woman $7,500. That happened to be while he was president and about to run for re-election. The worst part was that Big Woody had no doubt listened to Little Woody and sent Peck who was only two letters shy of making it a trifecta, a whole passel of indiscreet letters. He even crafted a statement to release in case the letters got made public. His wife Ellen had died the year before all this happened, and he was running for re-election in the letters and all that, and Wilson swore that Ellen knew about it and had forgiven him. Wilson said that the letters, and there were at least 200 of them that still exist, was, quote, a folly and gross impertinence but that he had, quote, been chosen to do God's work, end quote. Jesus, gag me with Tammy Faye Baker. The prose that I've seen from these letters was pretty lame. Things like, the pleasure I take in your letters is like the pleasure I take in you. 
I mean, nothing about your smooth, dewy thighs that's going to make him excuse himself from a cabinet meeting. But still, it's not helpful for a politician. I'm going to judge it as Wilson was very sheltered and one of those guys who was much less hip than he thought he was. He once described his attraction to women as, quote, a riotous element in my blood, end quote. And if that doesn't get the women at the disco, Randy, woo If Woody lived in the 1970s, he probably would have really wanted white patent leather shoes, but would have been too scandalized to buy them. I said Wilson was a politician because that's what he had become. The Democratic Party in New Jersey needed somebody to run for governor. They'd lost five elections in a row, and they figured Wilson would be easy to influence. In other words, a naive stooge. If they lost, so what? They'd lost five times in a row. But miraculously, he won. In 1911, he took office and for a brief while at least, started fighting the power of the political bosses. He passed a workers' comp law and a corrupt practices law. He upgraded factory working conditions. But then the Republicans took back the legislature the following year, so that was mostly a lot of vetoing after that, though he did sneak in some antitrust laws on his way out the door. While Wilson was governor, he hired a private secretary named Joseph Patrick Tumulty, who was every bit the Irish Catholic dude that his name implies. Tumulty even went to a grade school named St. Bridget's, so he couldn't have been more Irish political if he literally sweated whiskey and potatoes. Tumulty was a lawyer, and he served a few terms in the state assembly, but he became one of Woody's two closest advisors. Tumulty was the lead advisor to Wilson's campaign for governor and then stayed with him most of, but not all, of his life. Woodrow Wilson at this point had exactly one and a half years experience in elected office. So what does he decide to do? Run for president. This only happened one other time in our history, and we all recall how well that worked out. The progressives liked what they saw in Wilson, and his deep south bona fides won the crackers over. And though he had pissed off William Jennings Bryan, the big dog Democrat, by campaigning against him in 1896 because Bryan was too far left, Champ Clark, the Speaker of the House and Wilson's main rival for the nomination, had pissed off Bryan even more. So Wilson won the Democratic nomination in 1912. Another one of those telling stories that makes you want to smack Wilson in the head with a bunch of celery came after he got the nomination. He went up to one of the guys that had helped him win, a guy named Bill McCombs, who was the chairman of the Democratic National Committee. And he said, quote, I owe you nothing. I am a Presbyterian and this is predestination. God wants me to be president. End quote. Of all the arrogant shitheel statements that you've heard from politicians in your life, I am guessing that makes the top ten. It was a sentiment he was still sharing on his deathbed. There's an anecdote about Wilson when he met William Allen White, who was this nationally famous newspaper columnist from Kansas. White described Wilson's handshake as a 10-cent pickled mackerel in brown paper. The election of 1912 is one of the more interesting ones we've ever had. The Democrats hadn't won a presidential election in 20 years. But this time, Theodore Roosevelt, who was the darling of the Republican Party voters, if not the other politicians, decided that he wanted to be president again. The trouble was that William Howard Taft was already the sitting Republican president, and he wanted to keep the job. Teddy was butthurt because after he had personally handed Taft the job in 1908, Taft had drifted to the right. 
so he ran against Taft in the Republican primaries. Not that many states held primaries like they do now, but still, Roosevelt won 9 out of 13 of them. At the convention in Chicago, things got ugly. And why is it always Chicago? Why, Chicago? Why can't we have anything nice? Taft maneuvered his way to the nomination, but the Roosevelt people formed their own party, which they called the Bull Moose Party, because that teddy was a card. By far the best party name ever, I'll tell you that. Bull Moose. You had Wilson, Roosevelt, Taft, plus Eugene Debs running as a socialist. And I know what you're thinking. There are two Republicans, so they'll just split that vote. But remember, the Republicans in some places were still the more liberal party of the two. This is right at the end of the process of them becoming more conservative and going all in for business uber alles. In reality, it was Roosevelt and Wilson who had virtually the same platform. They were both in favor of more government intervention in social problems. They realized that private businesses were always going to side with profits over people unless they were forced to do otherwise. They're greedy bastards first, right? Roosevelt wanted to confront that by setting up a government agency to regulate the corporations. Wilson just wanted to break up the large corporations and then let presumed competition sort things out. This was the time period referred to as the Progressive Era, which by modern standards is an overstatement. It still represented progress over lots of things that had come before. The general belief was that government was here to make people's lives better. The progressives wanted to get rid of monopolies, corruption, and waste. In other words, they were against everything in the current state agendas of Florida and Texas. There is really one interesting thing here that resonates big time today. And I'll continue harping on the indisputable fact that money is the root of all political evil. That until the need to raise campaign money is removed from the process, we will always be the most openly corrupt nation on earth. Well, Wilson told his campaign finance guy, Henry Morgenthau, to refuse contributions from big corporations and rely on smaller donors. Shades of Bernie. Well, this also is when the story about Wilson plugging the matronly Mrs. Peck came into the news. But T.R. said he personally didn't believe the rumors. Basically, Roosevelt said, look at the guy. He called Wilson an apothecary clerk, and he said no one in the country could imagine Wilson as a Romeo. Teddy should have known it ain't always about the looks. Does any random person on the street really walk past Mick Jagger or Steven Tyler and think, boy, I bet those guys are rolling in babes? Wilson toured all over the country. Again, a departure from the front porch campaign that McKinley had run a few years before. And most of the people never went out campaigning, but Wilson gave speeches every damn where. He ended up getting only 42% of the popular vote but he won 435 out of 531 electoral votes. Roosevelt finished second over Taft. So 70% of the American people voted for a progressive candidate. And when you throw in 6% who voted for the socialist Debs, that's more than three quarters of the country that repudiated conservatism. Democrats also won both houses in Congress. Still, Wilson took office with the third lowest popular vote percentage Ever. You've heard about Doris Kearns Goodwin's book about Lincoln called Team of Rivals, where he added his political opponents to the cabinet. Well, that's not unique to Lincoln. Obama famously did it with Hillary Clinton, and Wilson picked William Jennings Bryan as his Secretary of State. Then he went one further and had Bryan help him select the rest of his cabinet. 
For treasury, they picked William Gibbs McAdoo. McAdoo was born in Georgia, but had moved to Tennessee. He was another hardcore Southern guy, and in 1914, he married Wilson's daughter. Talk about ass-kissing. Wowza! Good afternoon, Mr. President. May I say how nice your daughter looks today? I would be most interested in knowing more about the balance and assets of her loins. Or however treasury guys do it. You know, credit, debit, credit, debit, credit, debit. Oh, cash flow! James McReynolds, who you might recall from the Angry Old Men episode, was the Attorney General. Another notable one was Josephus Daniels who was the publisher of the Raleigh News and Observer in North Carolina. And Daniels was one of the loudest white supremacist voices in the United States. Daniels became Secretary of the Navy, and he was on record as saying that giving African Americans the vote was, quote, the greatest folly and crime in U.S. history, end quote. Interestingly, Daniels believed that blacks would block progressive reforms. Like I told you, the progressive era wasn't always very progressive. Daniels, by the way, had Franklin Roosevelt, this young attorney from New York, as his assistant secretary of the Navy. Joe Tumulty came with Wilson from New Jersey. The big name to keep in mind, though, was Edward House. He was from one of the two richest families in Houston, and he was called Colonel House, thanks to an honorary Texas State Honor Guard thing. He was never in the military. He had gone to prep schools in the U.S. and England, then came back to Cornell. He was not a tough military guy. If House had ever been the subject of a movie, he would have been played by Wally Cox. House was very much a progressive, and he ran the campaigns of four straight Texas governors, then served on their staffs, and he did the same thing for Wilson in 1912. House never had an official government post, but he probably exerted more influence on Wilson than anybody, especially in foreign policy. It's noteworthy that House was on record in the early 1900s as admiring the social reforms taking place in both England and Germany. So old Woody starts getting himself settled into the White House, and here's a slight morsel of grossness. His breakfast routine was to have a half glass of Concord grape juice with two raw eggs and then stir it all together with a spoon. Wilson himself said it tasted like, quote, an unborn thing. Wilson did have a slight sense of humor, or maybe it was more the guy who thought he had a sense of humor. His wife also probably encouraged that by saying things like, Woodrow, you are such a caution. Wilson liked limericks. He would get up and recite them at parties, and his favorite, because he had gotten big yucks with it at a dinner party at Princeton, was this. And I'm saying it just as he did, complete with the inaccurate meter, which inevitably chaps my ass about limericks. There once was a young monk of Siberia, whose experience grew drearier and drearier, till he burst from his cell with a hell of a yell, and eloped with the mother superior. One thing Wilson liked to do to relax was go for a drive in the country. He had this big open-topped Pierce arrow with the presidential seal stamped on the door. Later, he got a Pierce arrow limo, and that one is at his presidential library in Virginia. But like Taft before him, Wilson had open cars early on, and he would bundle up in blankets and go for these chauffeured drives. Ellen and some of the daughters would go with him. And this is really telling about Wilson's personality to me. He mapped out the routes. He had a Southern Maryland ride, a Potomac ride, and the chauffeur was absolutely forbidden to deviate from them. 
no compromise, even in the routes he took for a leisurely, relaxing drive. When Wilson came to the White House, he had his domestic agenda all lined out with the help of Louis Brandeis, who was a top national legal scholar. He called it the New Freedom. This, of course, became a very common thing to do later, but Wilson was the first to come up with this idea. He wanted to conserve natural resources, reform the banks, reduce the tariffs, and replace them with more fair taxes, and he wanted to break up the Western mining trusts. It's hardly Social Security and Medicare, but okay. Remember, Wilson's dad liked the high tariffs, but Wilson did not. Democrats viewed them as unfair consumer taxes, basically. Wilson was an early free trader, and he said high trade tariffs cuts us off from our proper part in the commerce of the world, violates the just principles of taxation, and makes the government a facile instrument in the hands of private interests. One of the first things he did was try to fix that. He worked with the House Majority Leader, Oscar Underwood, and he got a bill called the Underwood Tariff Bill. It cut the average tariff by 15%, but the reductions were not equal. It didn't touch luxury items at all, but it especially knocked down the tariffs on things deemed to be necessities and raw material that made necessities. For example, woolen items went from a 56% import tax down to 18%. Raw wool, iron ore, steel rails, and farm implements went to zero. Yeah, 56% is what I had said. In current perspective, our biggest import duties now are on imported clothes, and they run about 18 or 15%. The Orange Goon, by the way, wants to put a 60% tax on all imports from China. Would that not cause massive inflation, you ask? Does that ass nozzle not realize he completely lost the trade war last time he tried to start one? Wouldn't that kneecap American farmers and manufacturers and destroy our supply chains again, since we have a world economy whether or not someone with an IQ of a dead baby slug understands that? Why, yes, that's the answer to all the above. Oscar Underwood was one of those Southern progressives. He was from Alabama, and unlike some of the others, Underwood was famously anti-Klan. JFK name-dropped Underwood in his book Profiles in Courage. And I'm not at all sure how much the writers of House of Cards delved into the real Oscar Underwood when they slapped the name Underwood on Kevin Spacey's character, since it all came from a British show anyway that was very Thatchery and whatnot. Spacey's Underwood starts out as the Democratic House whip, and Oscar Underwood was the first person to ever hold that role in 1899. Spooky shit, eh? Woo! Underwood's bill passed the Senate 44 to 37, almost entirely on party-line vote. Stop me if you've not heard that one before. The thing that replaced the lost revenue for the government was a federal income tax on the top 3% of American wage earners. That was people earning more than three or four grand a year. It was the first federal income tax since 1872. There was also a corporate income tax, and though Republicans got back in and raised the import tariffs again, Wilson's graduated income tax became law and then got added to the Constitution and totally changed the way government gets operating revenue into a much more fair system. I talked about Andrew Jackson and getting rid of the Bank of the United States back in Episode 1, and I've also mentioned that without a stable banking system, the country just lurched from one financial panic to the next, like fucking Otis Campbell waiting for Andy, the sheriff of the economy, to let him into his cell and cover him with a blanket. 
William Jennings Bryan was a guy who had backed the central banking system for years. He was Secretary of State now and had Wilson's ear, and possibly still had Wilson's nose from a kid's party in 1911, but that's another story. Wilson pushed this middle ground proposal that set up a central Federal Reserve Board to oversee 12 regional Federal Reserve banks. Republicans wanted it to be run by private banks, as in, Hello, Mr. Robber. My house is unlocked and my jewelry is on the kitchen counter. But Wilson held his ground on this one and he insisted that the thing be, quote, public, not private, and must be vested in the government itself so that the banks must be the instruments, not the masters of business, end quote. The progressive Republicans had passed the Sherman Antitrust Act back in 1890 under Benjamin Harrison, that forgotten dude from the cough drops box. That law's heart was in the right place, but it was not very effective. The same kind of millionaire cabal was running all the American banks and railroads and industries just like before. And Woody wanted to tighten that shit up like Archie Bell and the Drells from Houston, Texas, because Woodrow could dance just as good as he walks. And yes, the lyric is walks. Anywho, Wilson got a congressman named Henry Clayton, yep, another Alabama guy, to introduce a bill that banned things like discriminatory pricing and exclusive dealing and interlocking boards of directors. But come to find out, staying ahead of people who wanted to get rich by cheating is a hard thing to do. So Wilson created the Federal Trade Commission to keep an eye on things and enforce them. And that, by the way, is the very kind of thing that Samuel Alito and his butt buddies are trying to eliminate as we speak because it hampers raping and pillaging by the people who are going to buy the justices a new RV. And no, they have zero shame. Y'all know that labor is a big thing for me, and old Woody's record here was pretty spotty. He declined to go after a child labor bill for a long time because he thought it would be unconstitutional. But when he realized he had a re-election campaign coming up in 1916, he reversed himself. One of the few times he reversed himself. This is one of those areas where the progressives were not very progressive. Those liberal Southerners I've been talking about were against cracking down on child labor because a lot of the textile mills and places using little kids were in the South. Ethics are great until they interfere with my bank account. But they decided not to filibuster the bill, called the Keating-Owen Act. The bill made it illegal for goods made with child labor to be shipped between states. Wilson still didn't want to sign it, but he finally caved in and did. A lot of pressure, election time, and guess what? The right-wing Supreme Court struck it down. And they struck down the next attempt. Child labor didn't get regulated until the 1930s, when FDR had some humans on the Supreme Court. Wilson did at least sign the first-ever child labor bill, which sounds like Robert Shaw from Jaws, right? But we delivered the bomb. Back in episode two, we talked about the violence against organized labor, and I rambled on about the Ludlow Massacre. That was part of the Colorado Coalfields War, and that was under Wilson. The private detectives and the Colorado National Guard were murdering miners right and left. So Wilson did offer to mediate eventually, but John D. Rockefeller, who owned a bunch of the operations, turned him down. Basically, Rockefeller figured they were doing a fine job of killing off the immigrant miners on their own. Wilson threatened to send in federal troops, 
And eventually, he did. And that ended the so-called war. But he also dawdled between September 1913 and April 1914 when he could have federalized the National Guard instead of just letting them machine gun strikers. His best labor move by far was pressuring Congress to pass a law giving railroad workers that eight-hour workday nationwide. He gets big points for being the guy who put the Philippines on the path to independence. He signed the Jones Act in 1916 to set up a Filipino Congress. So that's a plus, even if they did eventually blow their entire budget on shoes. He said he was against the U.S. acquiring more territories. Then he promptly went out and bought the U.S. Virgin Islands from the Dutch. Of course, that may be just because he was afraid they'd turn it into nothing but hookers and weed. Immigrants. He twice vetoed laws at the end of his administration that put severe restrictions on immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, but his veto was overridden both times. Of course, federal judge appointments are one way the presidents exert influence even from the grave. Wilson had three Supreme Court appointments, and two of them were significant. One was that he moved his Attorney General James Clark McReynolds to the Supreme Court when the first chance came up. McReynolds had developed this reputation for being against monopolies and trusts, but he turned out to be this radical right-wing, no-fiber-eating Sasquatch. He was one of the four horsemen that made Franklin Roosevelt push his court-packing plan. One of Wilson's biographers said Wilson called appointing McReynolds one of his biggest mistakes. I've not seen the quote, and i got to say, I think that particular biographer has a tendency to get sucked into a little Stockholm syndrome by the dead people he writes about. On the good side of the ledger, in 1916, Wilson appointed Louis Brandeis, the guy who had helped him write his new freedom agenda. Brandeis was the first Jewish supreme in our history, a solid liberal vote and the guy who was credited with enunciating the right to privacy still considered an all-time great legal scholar, and he has an entire university named after him. And I don't mean the kind that gets sued over mail fraud. Just wanted to clarify. Okay, so we ran down a bunch of things that Wilson did that were totally progressive and not only made the United States a much better and stronger country at the time, but continue to do so to this day. Really impressive things. I am sad to say, however, that it's pretty much downhill from here like a lead soapbox derby racer. Let's talk foreign policy. It started with Woodrow talking a pretty good game. He said he wanted to move away from imperialism that had brought us the Spanish-American War with McKinley and the Panama Canal grab under Teddy Roosevelt. Taft had moved away from using the military and gone to what was called dollar diplomacy, where the U.S. just loaned a shit ton of money to a small country and then held that over their heads like some landlord in a porno. Wilson said he didn't like that, but in his little stone-like heart, he was first and foremost an endlessly arrogant son of a Protestant preacher. He started sending the U.S. Navy and Army to intervene in, are you ready? Got your pencil? The Dominican Republic, Haiti, Cuba. Panama, and Honduras. He actually occupied Nicaragua throughout his entire presidency. And his statement on all of this was, I am going to teach the South American republics to elect good men. Oy. Wilson's biggest intervention from his first term was, of course, Mexico. Clearly, he wanted to save a little money on travel. The Mexican Revolution had started when Taft was in office, and I would say under Taft, but since he weighed about 350, under Taft was probably dark and dank and smelled of chicharrones. 
Taft had nothing to do with the Mexican Revolution anyway. It was Mexican revolutionaries overthrowing a corrupt dictator. But then more corrupt would-be dictators scurried out from the baseboards like the before part of a raid commercial. Where there's money to be made, though, you'll always find Americans. That's our Yankee Doodle DNA. The various bands of Mexican revolutionaries were being financed by the big banks in San Antonio and Houston. Seriously. So, Wilson sent the Navy, our Navy, into Veracruz. But that only served to piss off all of the factions in Mexico. Eventually, the sailors came home and Wilson backed Venustiano Carranza. But other revolutionaries believe that Carranza is not revolutionary enough. That's the way revolutions go. Among these are Zapata, who got a few Hollywood movies out of the deal, and Pancho Villa, who was memorialized in every Mexican restaurant in Texas. Wilson at one point said he thought of Villa as sort of a Robin Hood. But in 1916, Villa got mad at the Americans and raided this little border town called Columbus, New Mexico. And he killed and wounded a few dozen Americans. The people demanded old Woody do something. It was a bigger outcry than when Downton Abbey killed off poor Matthew. Woody sent General John Pershing into Mexico to exact retribution. Well, Pershing and 4,000 troops. They chased Villa all across northern Mexico, running up huge bar tabs, gargling chimichangas, and Carranza, in a stroke of Saddam or Noriega, shit, take your pick, turns against the Americans. We came close to war several times, but ultimately Mexico released some American prisoners, and Wilson withdrew our army after about a year-long south-of-the-border adventure. But in addition to a wicked hangover, our American lads got important on-the-job training for World War I. That war had started in Europe in August 1914, and Wilson had committed to stay neutral to a truly psychopathic degree. His buddy Colonel House, remember, admired both Germany and England. Wilson gave one of his most cringy Sunday school teacher tripe statements in the history of U.S. foreign policy. He said, quote, We must be impartial in thought as well as in action must put a curb upon our sentiments as well as upon every transaction that might be construed as a preference of one party to the struggle before another. End quote. Yeah, Americans, don't form any opinions, cause Lord knows that's worked before. Good God, you bad-toothed, gelatinous-spined worm. Conveniently, though, this allowed American businesses to continue trading with both sides. But two things happened. First, the Royal Navy imposed a shipping blockade of Germany, and Germany started up submarine warfare against anything bigger than a kayak. So for a time, the British Royal Navy were actually stopping American vessels bound for Germany and buying the entire cargo, then sending the empty ship home. In early 1915, the Germans sink not one, not two, but three American ships. And Wilson accepts the Germans' word that these were accidents and says, yeah, no problem, Klaus will settle up after the war. Then that May, the Germans sank the Lusitania, an ocean liner, a cruise ship. 1,200 people got killed, and 128 of them were American. Wilson, forever the tough guy, sent three angry notes to the Germans. And get this, William Jennings Bryan resigned as Secretary of State because he thought Wilson got a little too nasty in the second note. Pretty sure Kenny Rogers did a song about that. Good to know your country's got your back, right? Tough Woody, Texas Ranger, demands that Germany, quote, take immediate steps to prevent the recurrence of incidents, 
end quote. You just killed 128 Americans out for a three-hour cruise. You just torpedoed Mr. and Mrs. Howell, you hun bastards. But no, Wilson just says, don't do it again. Then, in March 16, the Germans torpedoed an unarmed ferry and killed four more Americans. And Wilson told him, no, no, I really meant it. He ends up picking Robert Lansing as his new Secretary of State and tells Colonel House that he chose him because Lansing, quote, would not be troublesome by injecting his own views, end quote. Basically, Wilson wants to be his own Secretary of State. He is clearly missing the entire point of what a cabinet of advisors is supposed to do. All right, now that I've bashed him a little bit, it's time to get all sympathetic again because in August 1914, the same month World War I started, Woody's wife, Ellen, died. The stories will tell you how deeply affected Wilson was, how despondent. But in March, that is one, two, three, seven months later, he met this new hottie at a White House tea. White House tea, you say. Was that the tinder of the Edwardian age? Yeah, maybe. This woman is named Edith Bowling Galt, but the Galt part had died a while back, so she is a boom chicka boom boom available. We all know by now how stable Woody is with relationships. He met her in March, he is in mad love by April, and he proposed marriage to her in May. Remember, the first wife had just died nine months before. Edith strung him along until September, and then they were married in December. There are confirmed stories that Wilson serenaded Edith with Oh You Beautiful Doll, and described, I'm not making this up, having a volcano inside him. Wilson and Grover Cleveland and John Tyler were the only presidents to ever get married while in office. Well, there was that one time a woman made a drunk JFK sign a one-day marriage thing in Vegas, but eh, we don't need to go down that road today. The Democrats ran Wilson for re-election on the slogan, He Kept Us Out of War. One of the big talking points was that the Republicans would take the nation into World War I. The Republicans nominated a Supreme Court justice, a sitting Supreme Court justice, Charles Evans Hughes, who only sounds like the chick from FBI Most Wanted. She's from New Zealand, by the way. Apparently, American accents are just too easy, except for Johnny Depp. I have no idea what that guy's saying. Anyway, a sitting justice running had happened a few times before. Most notably, John Jay, the very first chief justice, resigned to run for governor of New York. The Republicans bashed the new freedoms, particularly the lower tariff and the income taxes. And I'll say it again till I'm blue, nothing is more unseemly than rich people complaining about their taxes. Just pay them and shut the fuck up. The Republicans also lost their shit over the Adamson Act, which established an eight-hour workday for interstate railroad workers. It also gave them overtime pay. They called that class legislation. And I got a note here that Adamson, the dude who dreamed up that law, was from Georgia. There was this huge disconnect between horrid racism and progressive ideas. And in fact, most of the progressives were from the South and the West, and that was proven in the election results. It was really, really close. Wilson got 49 percent and 277 electoral votes, and the New Zealand chick got 46 percent and 254 electoral votes. Wilson carried the South and West, Hughes took the Northeast and Midwest, and it came down to California as the deciding state, and Wilson won the entire state by 3,800 votes. 
So that's twice that Wilson got elected with less than 50% of the popular vote. It's not like George W. or the Orange Goon who got millions fewer votes than the other candidate, but it was still less than half the voters who chose Wilson. Yet there's this overwhelming perception nowadays that Wilson was one of the more popular presidents. An interesting thing happened right around the election of 1916. Edith Wilson and Colonel House were both anti-Catholic. I mean, shit, most of America was anti-Catholic and had been since the 1830s. When the Klan came back starting around 1914-1915, they were as much anti-Catholic in some parts of the country as they were anti-black. They hated anyone who wasn't white, English-speaking, and Protestant. The Klan, of course, hit their strongest peak about 1920 or so. But in 1916, the sentiments were strong enough that Edith and House convinced Woody to fire Tumulty. Eventually, Wilson changed his mind and brought him back, but Edith hated the dude. Well, guess what? We're going to stop right here. This is the first time I have ever split a subject into two parts. But this Wilson fella is a complex mofo, and I don't want to make you suffer for too overly long. I know a few listeners have said they can do a whole prick the balloon on their walk or run, so if I do everything about Wilson all at once, they might pull something, and I, I just don't need that on my conscience. Still, the writer in me thinks there needs to be some sort of cliffhanger here, like, will Wilson keep us out of war? How will World War I turn out without the United States? Will the Lusitania rise from the deeps of the Atlantic and become a mysterious ghost ship filled with brain-hungry zombies in wet big hats? The answer to these and other mysteries next time on Prick the Balloon. Oh yeah, I want to plug my new novel again. It's called Wingo. The Remarkable Life of an Unremarkable Man. It follows Rube Wingo through the first half of the 20th century with all sorts of hijinks and loves and loneliness and baseball. It is funny historical fiction, and you can find it on Amazon, order it through your favorite bookstore or book website, or you can get a signed copy from my own website, MikeVanceWriter.com. And if you liked it, please leave a nice rating and review. And if you didn't, eh, we never had this conversation. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out my website at MikeVanceWriter.com. Prick the Balloon is copyrighted by Mike Vance, all rights reserved.